0: one man searches for intelligent conversation from Dedham, massachusetts the birthplace of modern democracy this is you don't have to yell with your host dan sally
1: welcome me hearties to the home for the politically homeless the podcast for those of you who like your politics and colors other than red and blue if you are new here Welcome and if you like what you hear today please tell one friend you think might like it too. You can also get additional commentary on this episode and other issues of the day by signing up for the ydhty email list at ydhty.com/news. Now, one week ago, President Biden signed an executive order wiping out up to $20,000 of student loan debt for those who met certain financial thresholds. And this was generally well received on the left as a way to provide relief from the high cost of education for middle and low income earners and decried from the right as being unfair to those who paid their student loans off or never took them out in the first place. Now, you might remember the conversation I had with Maya McGuinness from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget earlier this year. And if you haven't, you should check it out. It is the February 10th episode. And they've been putting out some great analysis on the costs and implications of Biden's plan. So, to discuss this, I invited Mark Goldwine, also of the CRFB, to discuss the numbers behind the plan and the larger implications on the greater economy. Now, I know I promised some more stuff on the economic drivers of political polarization and have some stuff in the can waiting to share for you, but I felt this conversation was too important not to get out there, and this kind of touches on the subject anyway. Now, the short answer on this program is that everybody's paying a lot, so a few can get a little. For the longer answer, you know what to do. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. One of the areas, actually, I wanted to start, because I didn't know this, and I don't think the listener knows this either, is really what this, what Biden's debt relief program involves, because it's not just a blanket bucket of funding. And and maybe to kind of get everybody on, you know, up to speed, can you talk very
0: briefly about how that debt relief program is structured? Yeah, so President Biden has actually made um, three different policy proposals two of which will be implemented very quickly and the other one a little bit more slowly. First of all, he's going to extend the current pause on repayments through the end of the year, meaning nobody that owes student debt, owes federal student debt, has to pay it back until January 1 of next year. This pause originated during the pandemic. It was sort of an emergency measure, but we've kept extending it. And uh, President Biden says this will be the last extension. Secondly, and I think this is the part that's gotten the most press, Um, President Biden has called for erasing $10,000 of student debt for almost everyone other than the sort of very rich and an extra $10,000 for anybody that has gotten Pell Grants. Um, Now, that includes undergraduate loans. It includes graduate loans. It also includes parent loans. So there could be a circumstance where you you took out loans and your parent took out loans and you were on Pell Grants and they weren't. And maybe there's $30,000 of total cancellation between, between the two of you for a single education experience. Now, there's a phase out which basically says if you as a household made above $250,000 or as an individual made above one hundred twenty-five, dollars if you're not married in 2021 and in 2022, then you don't get it. So this is meant to sort of be a tar- targeted to not the very rich, although I think we'll talk about it a little bit later. A lot of wealthy people are still going to end up getting it. And then the last part is a reform to something called income-driven repayment. We already have a program, actually several programs in, in place that are meant to cap just how much you have to pay in student debt each year if you're in these programs to make it so it's not exorbitant. Those programs are in many ways broken. This doesn't really fix them, but it does make them more generous. It reduces the cap for one of the programs from 10% of your income to 5% of your income. It also changes the way we calculate income, so less of your income is, is calculated in it. And it makes it so interest can't accrue, so your balances can't grow. Some of these, I think, are good ideas. Some are bad ideas. But while the first two are all about past debt, that third one is really about future debt payments um, and is going to continue to have an impact on cost down the road.
1: And my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is there's
0: been no official cost estimate of this program. Is that correct? Not, there's been no official cost estimate, which is a little nuts if you think about it, because This is probably the most expensive executive action that has ever been taken, certainly in my memory. I mean, maybe, you know, some actions become very expensive because Congress has to fund them later, like invading a country. But in terms of what the president can spend at the snap of a finger and the signature of a pen, this is probably, we think, going to cost about half a trillion dollars. The Penn-Wharton budget model thinks it might even be double that in their high case. And there has been no cost estimate released at all, either from the Department of Education or the White House.
1: Okay, so half a trillion dollars. And I know myself, probably yourself, and the listener have all become desensitized to the word trillions in in recent years. So is there a comparison we can use for context on what that cost means?
0: Well, let's look to the Inflation Reduction Act, a bill that was just passed and signed by the president that they bragged about as the largest deficit reduction bill since 2011. That saved $250 billion over a decade. So this is probably going to cost about twice as much over that decade as their signature deficit reduction bill saved.
1: Getting to the the recipient of that, what do the numbers say about the impact Mm. this is going to have on the
0: student debt problem overall. So right now there's about $1.6 trillion of outstanding student debt. This is probably going to cut that by a third. It's going to cut a little bit over $500 billion out of that student debt. And it's going to make a big difference for some people that are really burdened by this debt and can't get out of it. But fundamentally, it's not going to change the long-term story because it doesn't get at the underlying cause, which is expensive and not always high quality higher education, rising college tuition costs. And so we've estimated student debt is going to be right back at $1.6 trillion in just five years' time.
1: Yeah, and you bring, you bring up a good point, which is the reason you and I are having this conversation and the reason that that executive order was signed is because higher education is expensive. Is there any indication that this has any
0: impact on that at all? Yeah, actually, the evidence is this is going to make higher education more expensive on its own. It's called the Bennett Hypothesis. It um, There's a lot of data behind it. But you just need to think intuitively. Um, if the president at the stroke of a pen can cancel $10,000 of debt, what's to stop the next president from canceling $10,000 of the president for that? In fact, that'll be the expectation. People are going to assume not that every president is going to cancel debt, but they're going to assume it's going to be a regular thing. Presidents will from time to time cancel debt. If you If you're going to pay... $20,000 for a degree, but you know, in the back of your head, it may actually only end up costing you $10,000. You may be willing to spend a little bit more. And if people are willing to spend a bit more, that puts less pressure, whatever downward pressure there is on tuition, it's going to allow colleges and universities to raise their prices higher and to offer more low to medium quality degrees, more more junk degrees and more degrees that are perfectly nice, but they wouldn't be worth the cost if you had to pay the full amount. And so ultimately, I think this is going to make higher education costs. More expensive not less that was one of
1: my issues with the the income thresholds not to say that I, I, I think everybody should get it but the flip side of that is if you are making under one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year as an individual because you chose to get a master's degree in education and you chose to work in the public schools you know that that to me has a societal value uh, I was a major in creative writing so I would not argue that my degree has the same value towards economic value, I would say, <clears throat> as as somebody who's going into education. Do you do you have a feel for who benefits from this? Because I've, I've had a tough time sussing that out and what I've read. Um, I'll, I'll go on a bit of a tangent here from an electoral sense. I don't understand how this makes any sense. Because the people who are for cancellation of student loan debt, we gonna vote blue anyway. It's not like there's somebody out there who is like ready to vote for Blake Masters and the student loan debt relief just won him over. So I'm, I'm curious from the perspective, from like a socioeconomic perspective, who benefits from this, these, this relief program the most?
0: Yeah. So I'll try not to get too much into the politics, but I will say that only 13% of Americans hold student debt. Only about 12% of Americans will benefit um, from this particular policy. Because of that doubling up of the Pell Grants, Uh, because people with Pell Grants get twice as much, it skews actually relatively even across the same year income spectrum. If we just canceled $10,000 of everyone's student debt, what you would see is that would go mainly to higher earners because there's way more college educated people in the top half than the bottom half. But what's making up for that is that if you're in the bottom half, you're more likely to get twice as much debt cancellation. And so what we find is for same year, if you didn't go to any college, you get nothing. If you're very rich, you get nothing. And so what we find is people in the bottom 20%, and the top 20%, don't get very much, but people in that middle 60% actually are, are getting it pretty evenly. The big difference, though, is those who get it probably have much higher future earnings potential than those who don't, right? So, somebody making $100,000 a year w- that's just out of college with a college degree has a much higher lifetime earnings potential than somebody that's 50 years old making $100,000 with no college degree. They've probably more or less tapped out. Um, And so it's probably pretty even, except for the top and bottom for current year. But still, it's going to skew towards people that are going to have higher lifetime earnings, because those are the ones with the college education. One one of the big concerns, I think, over this is
1: how much it benefits those in the upper income versus those in the lower income. But I, I haven't seen a differentiation in terms of maybe people who came from lower income households who ultimately became upper income earners due to their degree. Is there any analysis on that at all? Or
0: do you have any comment on that? What's, what's really unfortunate is that the administration has had two years to develop this policy, you know, they, since they were running and they released it with no cost estimate, no real distributional estimates, just a couple of graphs that aren't very helpful. And so we don't know. The Pell Grants thing is helpful because it tells you based on the income they had. Um, of course, it's hard to predict someone's income in their future, but I'll give you an example. If you were in medical residency, in 2020, and you're now a surgeon, you still get this debt cancellation, right? So this can benefit some people that are pretty wealthy today. And it's certainly going to be able to benefit people that are going to be wealthy in the future, because this is a policy only targeted towards people that have at least some college education.
1: Is there any credence to the argument that over the course of time, those people with a higher education are going to earn more, and they're going to contribute more in taxes, and that will offset the effects of
0: of this program well remember this program doesn't improve college affordability so people can go to college it cancels your debt after you've already gone to college right and so except for through this indirect effect where people expect some kind of future cancellation this isn't encouraging more people to get an education it's it's really a a transfer to people that already had made that decision and are already going to make have those earnings And there's not much evidence that if you got $10,000 of debt canceled, canceled, you'd suddenly move to a more productive, higher earning job and pay more taxes.
1: You know, a lot of people argue that this plan is effectively free. And the reason for that is a lot of people who borrowed have paid more than $10,000 in interest. They've effectively, the government's still going to get back their principal. Uh, It's just the interest effectively that's cut off. Is there truth to that? And if so, what's your rebuttal?
0: There's there's no truth to that in the sense that whatever the government was going to get, they are now going to get $10,000 less, right? So whether it was going to be a super profitable program, and it's now not profitable, or it was going to be profit, it was going to be even and now it's losing money. Either way, this particular policy is a big cost. But on top of that, prior to this policy, the Government Accountability Office, the CBO and others put out estimates that actually the student loan program overall was losing money. And part of that was because of the pause we did. Part of that was because of other Biden administration policies, but the program was already losing money prior to this announcement, and now it's gonna be losing 500 billion more, give or take. There were a few programs under
1: the Biden administration that caused it to lose money. What, what were those
0: programs? Prior to the pandemic, the estimates were that the student loan program was about breaking even. Some people were gonna pay more than they got out, some people were gonna pay less. Um, and then at the beginning of the pandemic, we issued a pause in all payments which was then extended, started under the Trump administration, extended for almost three years. That pause is really costly because over the period, we canceled the interest. On top of that, the Biden administration has canceled some debt from, I think, semi-fraudulent or fraudulent institutions. I think that makes sense. It was good policy to cancel that debt, but it still costs money. And they've done sort of some one-time changes to income-driven repayment and other programs to try to give people relief. These things have cost about $250 billion in total. You add together the pause to this target relief before we get into the $500 billion. So mm. prior to the pandemic, we were at about even. Then we spent $250 billion. Between that spending and other things that happened, we're now estimated to be down $300 billion before before this new proposal. It'll be down $800 billion, give or take, after this proposal is implemented. What does that mean for the student loan program as a whole? Um, well, luckily for the student loan program as a whole, it's financed out of general tax dollars and general borrowing dollars. And so it doesn't have like its own unified trust fund. It can lose money. It just means it's paid for by the rest of the taxpayers. And how will we pay for it? First, through inflation. When the economy is as hot as it is now, we're going to borrow more to pay for this. This is going to increase total spending in the economy. And that's going to increase prices for the gro- at the grocery store, at the furniture store, at the gas pump. Secondly, this is going to over time add to federal debt and accumulate federal interest costs. And we're going to have to deal with that either through future tax increases, through future spending cuts, or by taking more money out of the private sector and eroding future wage growth. Probably some combination of the three.
1: That's something I wanted to get to as well. Now, just I'll, I'll pause here for the listener <laughs> because, you know, I had a conversation with Maya McGuinness way back in uh, the beginning of the year. And and we talked about the impact that uh, interest rate hikes or inflation could have on the I- overall government spending. I think the, the the quote she gave me was effectively, a, I think it was a one percent increase in interest rates would effectively equate to another Build Build Back Better plan in 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 just interest yeah. plans effectively. Um, That's about so right. And I think I want to go to the inflationary side of things because I feel like there are some folks who, you know, maybe you're listening, maybe you don't care about the deficit. I'm guessing you probably do because I would have turned you off a while ago. But I, I'm, I'm curious, is, is that amount of money significant when it comes to its potential to affect inflation?
0: So $500 billion is not gonna break the bank by itself. Um, but what you have to understand is what it's built upon. Our debt right now is about as large as the economy. It is headed for our World War II record levels within a decade, it's going to keep rising. So it's a lot of money, not enough on its own to break the bank, but adding to a lot of debt. As for the inflation effect, we've estimated that maybe it would add a quarter point to inflation. Again, right now, the inflation rate is like 7%. And so a quarter point, you could say, is not large relative to the inflation rate, but it's actually very large relative to the inflation that's under the control of the presidency and under the control of the Congress. Fiscal Mm -hmm. policy can only do a little bit to affect inflation. The Inflation Reduction Act maybe got us 0.05% reduction in inflation rate, something like that. This is going to be much more inflationary several times over. And that quarter point increase in inflation is going to mean the Federal Reserve has to fight inflation even harder. Uh, Jason Furman, who is Barack Obama, President Obama's chief economist, he's estimated that this policy could mean one to three additional Fed rate hikes at the end of the period. That could be the difference between a recession and not. That could be the difference between a 7% mortgage and a 6.25% mortgage. That could be a big deal. And so, yes, it's, it's small relative to our overall inflation. It's small relative to overall debt. But when you're already in an inflation crisis and when you already have debt at record levels, adding these, these incremental effects could make a big difference.
1: And getting back to, to something you said earlier too, is somewhere around, it's you said 13% of the population has student loan debt, correct? And arguably, if the Fed starts raising interest rates, whether or not that invokes a recession, it will still impact everybody's lives. And so if you are not somebody who took out that debt, if you're not somebody who pursued a higher education, maybe you entered into a trade or something like that, you're going to be paying the price in the form of inflation and in the form of higher borrowing costs. Do I have that correct?
0: Yeah, I'd imagine it this way. Would you cancel $500 billion of student debt paid for by raising payroll tax by, you know, 0.25% or a 025 sales tax? That's basically what we're doing. And if the Federal Reserve fights that by raising interest rates even more, um, here's an irony, student loan interest rates will go up for new borrowers. And actually new borrowers will have to actually pay more for their new debt. Unless, of course, we cancel it again.
1: I didn't invite you on to, out to answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, which is, I mean, you and everybody else at the CRFB are put out a lot of great content related to reducing the debt, reducing the deficit. And one of the political challenges I think that we face in this country is that it's effectively a blank check, or, or I should say deficit spending is effectively a blank check. Everybody loves spending. Everybody loves low taxes. And there's zero consequence right now. Is there, is, is there any appetite left in Washington for any sort of fiscal
0: responsibility, do you feel? As a, well, I would dispute that it's a blank check. I think in normal times, politicians feel like they can cut taxes and raise spending for free. But these aren't normal times. We're actually in a very overheated economy to the point that every dollar that they increase spending or cut taxes is probably adding to the inflation rate, you know, at least by half or a quarter of that dollar. So they're seeing sort of the punishment for, I think, overspending uh, about this time last year. With that said, and, and there is some appetite in reducing deficits, we saw that with the Inflation Reduction Act, that actually, in order to get 50 votes in the Senate, they needed a bill that had more taxes and more spending cuts than than it spent in new money. Whether there's the appetite to do the things we really need to do, which is make Social Security solvent, really get health care costs under control, raise new revenue, especially I think by cutting tax breaks, and cap our other kinds of spending, whether there's the appetite to do that, I don't think at the moment, but I'm hoping soon. I'm, I'm hoping that as people realize this money isn't free, realize what it's done to inflation, what it's doing to interest rates, that there's a change in tone, like we saw in the 1990s. So
1: you know, we've talked a lot about the the, the ill effects of, of the current program. What do you feel the federal government should be doing to address this, the issue of, of education costs?
0: Yeah. So, so I think this debt cancellation is, it's worse than a bandaid because it's a temporary solution that actually makes your long-term problem worse. Um, instead, we need to focus first and foremost on college affordability. And I think that means pushing for a colleges to be accountable and have high quality, um, but B pressuring them to actually get costs down, to accept more transfer credits, offer more no frills degrees, you know, cut out some of the waste. We really need six different meal plans, um, you know, and and 10 different rec centers. So I think there's a lot of ways we can get college costs down. We just got to put the right kind of pressure on them. And then on top of that, we do need a student loan and financing system that makes sense. And I think that we have the basis of that. It's income-driven repayment. It's just our current income-driven repayment system doesn't really work really well. We need to build a new one that everyone is enrolled into that can differentiate between undergrads and graduate students that doesn't give unlimited amounts of money, but gives you enough that you can get the education you need and pay it back um, in an affordable way. And if we could get the IDR program working, we can get college affordability under control, maybe put some more investment into Pell Grants. I think we have sort of a bright economic future here. I mean, we could actually get back that return to college and make sure people have the education they need. But these one-off Band-Aid solutions just aren't going to work. I started
1: laughing when you talked about six different meal plans because my son goes to a state school right now where they have sushi Sundays. And yeah, so, you know, writing that check for <laughs> that, I don't know. Um, but one one thing I wanted, I wanted to talk about as well, or I wanted to kind of explore is you, you, you'd you mentioned building or improving the income-driven repayment model and getting back to me and my desire to pursue a degree that maybe wasn't that economically sensible. It, it, does it? I guess in a just world, are we filtering people like me out of that lower income or that income-driven repayment model or, or no?
0: So here's the situation. There are always trade-offs. If we wanna make college more affordable, we are also gonna be helping people to pursue degrees that aren't as high return. That's that's the trade-off. I think it's how do you balance that? And here's one way to balance it. Income-driven repayment should differentiate based on how many years you've gone to school or between undergraduate and grad. We shouldn't basically, your subsidy shouldn't go up dollar for dollar the more years of school you go to, which is what happens now. Um, I do think that for for many, if not most people, a college education is helpful. But not everybody needs a college education. Not everybody should get a college education. There are loads of productive jobs in this economy that don't require a college education. There are loads of productive jobs in this economy that don't require a master's degree or a PhD. People should do what's best for them, for their budgets, for their mental health, for their intellectual stimulation. The federal government should provide support to make sure that people can afford the basics and nobody is is being so burdened with this debt that, you know, it ruins their livelihood. But... We can't be out there giving $10,000 gifts every few years. All right. So I'm safe.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider leaving a review. This podcast spreads by word of mouth. I'll also have some links to the CFRB's content in the show notes, so check that out as well. Now, as Mark said, Biden's current plan provides moderate debt relief to those most likely to see higher lifetime earnings than their non-college educated counterparts while requiring everybody to pay for it via inflation, interest rate hikes, and a potential recession. And part of America's polarization problem involves the gap between college and non-college educated workers. So it's really hard to see this policy not making things worse on that front. This also does nothing to address the cost of education or the drivers behind it, meaning a future student loan forgiveness package will have to be granted in order for us not to be in the exact same position five years from now. Now, one sort of bright spot in all this is that inflation might turn voters back onto fiscal sustainability and have them actually asking how we're going to pay for programs like this, rather than just assume that the trend over the last three or four years of writing blank checks is going to continue. I will be speaking with someone about what's driving the cost of education, which I hope to have ready next week, so stay tuned. As always, music courtesy of Quellertac, YDHTY's director of continuous improvement is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Geno, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. bye oh, Bye-bye.